So this morning, I am going to be uh, basically talking about the veracity of Mark's gospel. Now, veracity means accuracy, um, devotion to truth, and truthfulness. And so, in order to do that, what I'm going to do is just give a little mini lesson on the authenticity of Scripture and how we know that the Word of God can be trusted and, and used to build our lives uh, and, and that we will be able to uh, become more conformed to the image of Christ through His Word. Jesus says, I pray that you would sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Now, if you look at our text for this morning, it's Mark chapter 16 and verse 8. Right after that, it says in a lot of versions, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include verses 9 through 20. Well, if you were to look at the, uh, the end of John chapter 7, you would see the same thing because the story of the woman caught up in the act of adultery is not in the oldest manuscripts of the Gospel of John either. So what is meant by the earliest or oldest manuscripts? Well, the Gospel writers just wrote one manuscript each, right? So they wrote it down but we do not have any of the original manuscripts. We only have copies. And so as we look at any scripture text, we are looking at historical documents and copies of the originals. Now, just as we do with anything, we have to look at when they were written, how many copies we have, and we, we, even with historical documents, judge are they, uh, uh, are they uh, to be trusted. So if you look at the Greek uh, historian uh, Herodotus, who lived between 480 and 425 B.C., the earliest copies of his work were written actually 1,300 years after he died. And there we only have eight copies total. And then if you look at Plato, who lived between 428 and 347 B.C., it was 1,200 years after he died that we have any manuscripts. And we only have seven copies of his manuscripts. Then we have Aristotle, who lived between 348, uh, or 384, sorry, a little dyslexic there, um, and 322 B.C., and that was written uh, 1,400 years after his death, and we only have five copies of his work. Around 12 manuscripts are really considered essential for determining the work of Julius Caesar and his account of the Gaelic Wars. Now, the oldest manuscript that we have is in the ninth century, and that's a full 900 years removed from the actual events. The New Testament, on the other hand, we have manuscripts as early as 10 years 
from John's death, A.D. 100. And the entire Bible, as early as 210 years after it was written. Now, altogether, there are over 25,000 copies of the New Testament, whether complete or fragmented, and some, as I said, within 10 years of the original. That's more than any other ancient writing. Now, in contrast, if we look at Homer's Iliad, and that comes in a distant second with a mere 643 manuscripts, and the old, oldest copy is 500 years after the original. Now, some of the copies differ in a word here, there, a sentence, or sometimes as uh, in a whole section, as we see in Mark chapter 16. And you wonder, why is this? Well, you know, if you lived in Israel in 60 AD and you wanted a copy of Mark's gospel, how would you get it? You wouldn't run down to State, Straight, Straight Street in Damascus and pop into the office depot. Instead, you would sit down and painstakingly write it out one word at a time. And if there were any errors made, you would end up having a copy that was not a perfect copy. And if others made a copy of your copy, that wouldn't be perfect either. So how do we know that we have genuine text, or at least one that we can trust to be accurate in all things that matter? Well, uh, Craig Bloomberg from the Gospel Gospel Coalition states that there's only an average of 16 variations per manuscript. Bloomberg states, and I quote, the vast majority of these involve variations in spelling of words or the use or non-use of an article, a conjunction, or participle, or slight variations in syntax. The only two that involve more than uh, one or two verses are Mark 16, 9 through 20, and John 7, 53 through 8, 11. Most importantly, no doctrine or ethical teaching of Christianity depends solely on one or more disputed text, uh, end quote. And so... Some believe that copyists added to the Gospel of Mark. They believe that uh, when he wrote it, he, he just uh, uh, stopped at verse 8, and then others wrote after that. Others, like James N. Edwards, believe that Mark did not end with verse 8. Edwards says, it's hard to imagine a gospel that begins with a bold, resounding announcement of divine sonship that we see in Mark 1.1, and then ending on a note of fear and panic. Verse 8, Edwards says, even brought, breaks off in mid-sentence, which is out of character for the rest of the text. Another argument that Mark did not end his gospel with verse 8 is that it follows uh, Matthew very closely. 
But you need to remember that Mark was the first of the gospel writers. Now, there were other New Testament books written before Mark, but his was the first gospel book to be written. And Mark 16, 6 through 8 is the account of the angel speaking to the woman and leaving the tomb. And that is paralleled almost verbatim in Matthew 28, 5, 5 through 8. So it's believed by many scholars that Mark's gospel ended in the same way that Matthew's ended, with the women going telling the disciples that they had seen Jesus and that he was alive and that he would meet them in Galilee. He did not meet them there, uh, and in, or he did meet them there, and Matthew ends his gospel with the Great Commission. And here's the final piece of evidence, is that Mark has many signature motifs, one of which is exousia. That word means authority or power of Jesus as the Son of God. Every time Mark writes about the authority of Christ, Matthew reproduces that in his own gospel, except here. Matthew includes Jesus' last statement, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. John MacArthur states on this, and I quote, here in Mark 16, someone might say, that issue of accuracy is called into question because there is this odd ending of Mark. Starting in verse 9 and running down to verse 20, you see a section in brackets, a bracket before the word now in verse 9 and after, following after the word follow in verse 20. And if you have a new American Standard or English Standard Version, even if you had a New King's James Version, there would be a note in the margin explaining that this is a variant, that this is a text that has been added to Mark. MacArthur continues by saying all translations of Scripture are of them, uh, uh, all of them are based on ancient sources, ancient sources that have been discovered in libraries throughout ancient times, treasuries for the libraries. They have been discovered, they have been studied, they have been analyzed for their accuracy. They have been compared by the most fastidious, dutiful, thoughtful, careful scholars throughout the centuries. So that I can say to you unequivocally, the Bible you hold in your hand, if you have a formal equivalency, is an actual translation. I can assure you, you have an accurate Bible. The Holy Spirit, who is the author of Scripture, inspiring every writer of Scripture, is also the preserver of Scripture. Supernaturally, he moved on the writers without disrupting their own words and thoughts and ideas so that they wrote exactly what he wanted them to write. He moved on the preser- uh, preservers to make sure that the Scripture stayed pure for history, end quote. I 
can't tell you how much I appreciate that. There are times when we start to think that we have the ability without having the knowledge of Greek or Hebrew or, or study of ancient Scripture. Hear some good, uh, some person say something that sounds good, and so we hold to it, and therefore we take out of Scripture what should rightly be there. And so when it comes down to the most, uh, most English translations of the Bible, we do see that this section is bracketed. Some say that Mark's original ending was lost by well-meaning scribes, and so they put in a secondary, secondary ending. Obviously, most of the information that is contained in verses 9 through 20 may have been pulled out of the writings of Matthew, Luke, and John. It may be that a few scribes got together, started picking out from the other Gospels and as well as New Testament books and made more of an acceptable ending. Verse 9, we can see, uh, is taken out of Luke 8. Verse 10 is taken from John 20, verse 18. Verse 12 is taken from Luke 24, the road to Emmaus account. Verse 13 is taken from Luke 24. Verse 14 is taken from Luke 24. Verse 15 is taken from Matthew 28. Verse 16 is taken right out of John 20, verses 17 and 18. And, and those 17 and 18 are, are really, we're not sure where those came from, other than if, if Mark actually did put those in when he wrote but while it's possible that Mark did not write the final verses that, uh, of the gospel that bears his name, I think it would be a disservice if we didn't preach it as Scripture. There are just too many, too many times where we think that we're, we're going to cut out Scripture. There was one man that I think we would all look at and we would all say, man, he was a great man, great man of the Reformation. His name is Martin Luther. Martin Luther spoke dismissively of the book of Revelation because Christ is neither taught nor known in it, which is the primary responsibility of an apostle to do. He summed up his point of view with a flat observation, I stick with those books that give me Christ pure and simple. That's Martin Luther. Mar Martin Luther also considered Hebrews, James, Jude, and Revelation as to be disputed, uh, including his translation, um, but placed separately at the end of the New Testament publication in 1522. Now, when we sit there and we say because this, this section is not found in the oldest text, there are actually just two texts that are the oldest two that it's not found in. The majority, overwhelming majority of Greek texts do contain these verses. And the oldest translations, the old Latin, the Vulgate, 
the old Syriac, the Pastido, and Jerusalem Syriac. So this was recognized in the early church as Scripture. Actually, Irenaeus, Cyril of Jerusalem, Ambrose, Augustine, Clement of Rome, Justin Martyr, Clement of Alexandria, Eusebius, and Jerome all said that this is inspired Scripture. And so, as you look at this, you, you think to yourself, how do we deal with this? I want to deal with this in a way that as we look down deep, there is no way that we want to tamper with the Word of God. There is nothing at all in these verses that contradict at all any of the, the rest of Scripture. So that is the way that I'm going to handle it. So with that, if you would please turn to our text. It's found in Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 14. I'm sorry for that long introduction, but you know, so many people will end up making a case. You know, it's, it's almost like armchair quarterback, right? We all know that that quarterback shouldn't have thrown that pass because we saw it on TV and, and it just didn't look good. Well, so many times we can sit there and be armchair Bible theologians without really any training and, and knowledge. So with that, let's go ahead and, and read our text. It says, Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive and had seen, been seen by her, they did not believe. After that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later, he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. Again, we have to just look at the, the verses here we have to realize that these manuscripts were rolled up on, on scrolls or, or wooden dowels, and there could have been pieces and fragments that ripped over time. But one of the things that makes it very plausible that verse 8 is not the end of it is because in the original Greek, it ends with the word for. In the the Greek text, it literally says, they were trembling and amazed and said nothing to anyone. They were afraid for. So it just ends. They were afraid of, for what? For they assume people would think they were crazy. For they were afraid people don't rise from the dead. They were afraid because they hadn't yet understood all the, 
all the, wor the work the Lord had done, what were they afraid for? Well, we saw the language used is very dramatic. The resurrection was shocking. And like we said last time, they didn't come to look for the resurrected Jesus. They came to take care of his dead body. They didn't yet believe that he had rose from the dead. The women are convinced of the resurrection by the empty tomb, and they saw by the, by the tomb an, an announcement, the spectacular announcement of these angels. And so it dawned on them what had actually happened, and they were terrified and bewildered. They were gripped by this unthinkable reality of resurrection. And just a few steps later, they're fleeing from the tomb. They're fully, just totally overwhelmed. So much so, it says in verse 8, that they were speechless. They said nothing to anyone. Some say, oh, that's a great ending to this because they're speechless. But there's got to be more to the story because time and time again throughout the life of Jesus Christ, he promised that he would raise, raise from the dead. He told his disciples this many, many times. The problem was no one close to him believed. And I think that's one of these things that we need to keep in, in tension, and I'll try to get to that a little bit later. But we can't help but see that unbelief was a big problem. In the NASB, verse 11 says they refused to believe. And when Jesus finally appeared to the other witnesses, they didn't believe them. And then it says in verse 12 that he reproached them for their, uh, their unbelief or rebuked them for their unbelief. Looking again, at verse 9 of our text, we see it says, Now when he arose rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. In order to get a better view of what's going on here, I'd like to invite you to turn to John's Gospel, chapter 20. and uh, We'll start at verse 11. And, and then keep your finger there, because we're going to go back to that. Um, we're going to go from verses uh, 14 on. But for now, let's ju just look at verses 11 through 13. Matthew chapter 20, starting with verse 11. But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Then she said, they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now, you see, here in John's account of Mary Magdalene, we see she's weeping. And these angels tell, tell her, 
that, you know, uh, or she's telling the angels, they say, what, what are you doing? They tell, she tells the angels, they have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they have laid him. She wanted, she didn't expect a resurrection. She wanted to pay honor to a dead body. She's still in that mindset. But listen to this. This is so incredible. This is amazing that the first person that Jesus appears to after his resurrection isn't a priest, isn't an elder, isn't a scribe. It's not even one of his own disciples. The first person he appears to is this woman who was once demon-possessed. And we see here, according to John, she was standing outside the tomb sobbing over the fact that Jesus was dead there was an empty tomb, and she can't believe it. But she didn't believe that he had risen. Now, why would Mark identify Mary Magdalene as the one from whom Jesus cast seven demons? Why do that? Well, I think it's like Vody Bauckham says. Our past sins leave scars on our life. We sit there as believers and look back and we think, how could I have done that? What in the world? I was so sinful. Do you know what those scars do? They drive you to the cross. They make you remember the grace that was shown you. A sinner saved by grace. And so we see the same thing with Mary, a, a, a woman who, whom Jesus cast out seven demons. She carried that, that scar of that. And so the angel spoke of Jesus' promise to appear to his followers in Galilee. All the appearances that are recorded in this postscript, are appearances in Jerusalem. You see, this would have been the last person in the world who would, you would think that Jesus would first uh, appear to. But this was Jesus' first choice. He decided to appear to this woman to show her amazing grace. Way back in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus said, For even the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. A ransom for many. Jesus said that in, in chapter 10. He said that his life on the cross would be a payment of sort. When they put his body on the cross. They put his body in the tomb. He was making a payment on our behalf. So when his body was raised to life and when he walked out of the tomb, out of death, God was saying, paid in full. All kinds of parables, they can all just go astray, but let me try to better get this through to you. Just imagine that you had a terminal illness. And in order to cure it, the doctor says he needs payment. 
The only thing is that he only accepts debit cards. You know debit card. It means you already have the money in your account. We don't have any money in our account to pay for sin. None. And so you know that. You know you don't have near enough money to make the payment to this doctor in order to save your life. So then what happens is someone comes along and they said, they'll make payment for you. So they take out their, their debit card and they put it in this machine and you're really excited. But there's something that you're waiting for. You're waiting for a message Payment accepted, remove card. You are sitting there going, I'm so in incredibly excited that the payment's going to be made for me, but I'm waiting to see that that payment was accepted, that the card can be removed. And you see, the empty tomb is remove card, arise, go, payment accepted. Jesus died so you don't have to. He descended to death so you don't have to. His death was a ransom for your sin. His resurrection is a guarantee of our, our, of our eternal life. That's what the, the empty tomb says. Payment accepted. Thanks be to God. And so here, the Lord is showing us that this payment isn't made for those who are worthy. This is Mary, the first person. It's not made for those who are worthy. It's made for those who are not. I have a quote there. It says, God does not call the qualified. He qualifies those he calls. And so continuing with verse 10 of our text, it says, she went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. They too were mourning and weeping because Jesus' body was, was, he was dead and his body was gone. You can just imagine Mary. She often sat at, sat at the feet of Christ listening to his words. She loved to understand more about her, her Lord's mission. She, she wanted to hear how he came to seek and save the lost. She wanted to know more about grace that he alone gives sinners. And she loved to tell him how thankful she was that he had cast out seven demons because she was a poor, vile sinner. She loved to hear about this grace of God through Jesus Christ. She loved to hear that he would make her a new creation so that old things would pass away and all things would become new because she bore the scars. She had heard from him that there would be a day that would come that she would be renewed day after day in her heart and in her mind. And this was satisfying for her soul as the grace of God worked in her she knew it was him and him alone that could impart this to her. 
This was what she was caught up with that day. And she had followed him with the other disciples. He had become the most important person to her. He was her friend. And she was confident that she, she would become a holy woman of God through His work, His sanctifying work. So now if you would again turn to John chapter 20, and we'll start at verse, well, let me start at verse uh, 13. She said to them, well, it, let me say, then she, they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, because they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they laid him. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say teacher. Now seeing the empty tomb and now seeing the risen Savior, she knew that the payment had been made in full. Her faith had turned from concept to reality. William Burkett, in his commentary on this, says, that our blessed Savior, after his resurrection, first appeared to Mary Magdalene, a grievous sinner, was done for the comfort of all true penitence. End quote. He's right. There is comfort for everyone who has repented of their sins and received our Lord Jesus Christ. Those sins that we repent of, they, we know now they grieve the heart of God. If you have received the grace to mourn over your sins in repentance, you shall surely find comfort of Christ as you look to him in faith. This was Mary's testimony. It was Mary's faith. She knew he was the one she needed most. It's, it's, it's hard to even contemplate what was going through her mind at this time. Mary is being cynical and pragmatic, accusing the men of stealing Christ's body, only to discover that all the reasons she thought she needed to be cynical disappeared. She was assuming the worst and experiencing the best. Mary's response was in true faith, true saving faith. All the hostility and suspicion are now gone. She looks at Christ and she recognizes him for who he is and calls out to him with a title of honor and reverence. Even though her hopes were put to shame and he was the cause, she did not refer to any of that. 
She simply and wholeheartedly enters a proper relationship with him as Lord. She calls him very reverently, Rabboni, my teacher. And what did Jesus do? He immediately gave Mary a mission. Christ sent Mary with a message. Tell my followers this. Tell them what they need to know. They didn't need to see the physical presence at that moment. They needed to know that Christ, the truth of Christ is found in Scripture and he said over and over that he would rise. That's what they needed to know. They needed to understand that Scripture can be trusted. And so Mary went off to tell the, the disciples who were also weeping and mourning all about the, the Jesus appearing. And you know what they were? They were so excited, they ran up to her and gave her a big hug. Not so fast. Look at verse 11. And when they had heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. The disciples of Jesus Christ, they refused to believe that he had risen from the dead. They are mourning, they're weeping as if it's all over. Rather than believe in the truth, they would rather wallow in their depression. They basically called Mary a liar and refused to believe her. Instead of believing the her testimony, they inclined their hearts to their own understanding of this whole matter of Jesus' death. They were wrongly thought about the whole experience over this last three years, and now it was all over. They couldn't bring him back to, uh, again, and there was no use in believing that Jesus would return to them. But they forgot. They forgot about Christ's words. They forgot about the promise and God's power that he said he would rise again. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 7 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. I think this shows how easy that some, uh, some strong, these people that see themselves as strong Christians fall into paralyzing unbelief that somehow leaves them in a hopeless and, and helpless condition. So we see the, the testimony of Mary's faith. And sometimes we are, allow ourselves to grieve in that same way. Sometimes we just can't seem to receive the Scripture. Or we can't receive the encouragement of others who want to lift us up to the reality, the truth, that Christ is the risen Savior. These men were, were broken, wounded, and they refused the encouragement brought by others that they might believe. And so continuing with verses 12 and 13, it says, After that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it to the rest 
but they did not believe them either. Hear that phrase, another form? That word another is heteros, and it means of uncertain affinity or different quality. And that word form is where uh, the Greek word is morphe, and it's where we actually get metamorphosis. But morphe just means shape or form, where metamorphosis means transforming. Uh, Bi uh, Bible commentator John Gill says this. He says, quote, It seems to have been the form or habit of a gardener that he appeared to Mary, since she thought him to be one, and uh, to be the gardener that belonged to the garden in which the tomb was. But now it was in another form that he appeared, very likely in the form of a scribe or doctor, since he took upon him, uh, since he took upon him to expound the scriptures to the persons he appealed to. End quote. So we need to understand that he revealed uh, himself to Mary in one form. But this doesn't mean that he shaped, changed the shape of his body or his features or anything. Uh, Gill uses the, the term habit, which is just clothing. Um, you would, if someone walked up to you with a lab coat and a stethoscope, you would say a doctor. If they came up with, uh, with coveralls or overalls and, and a, a hat and a piece of straw in their mouth, you'd say farmer. So there's just that difference in the way that he appeared. He didn't transform into something that he wasn't. The reason they didn't understand or know him is that their eyes weren't opened. We know that as soon as their eyes were opened or given the ability to perceive him, they knew him perfectly well. The same thing happens with the gospel. Until a person's eyes are open, the gospel is an offense. And they are blinded to that truth. Remember the day that you first believed? You maybe heard the gospel over and over and over, and you go, I wish those Jesus freaks or those Bible thumpers would get out of my way. I've had enough of it. But then your eyes are opened and now you're able to perceive the reality of it and you come to love the same gospel that you once hated. And so just like, like Jesus here, if there had been any modification made in him, he could not have been known to them who he was. It wasn't his modification it was the fact that they needed their blinded eyes to be opened so that they would know him. We need to understand Jesus never changes. It's our new birth that changes us. When we are born again, our eyes are opened, our ears are opened, our hearts are changed. We're the ones that change. And here's another thing. It's so strange that those who are closest to Christ would have such a hard time believing that he had been raised from the dead. When on numerous occasions he told them that he would be. 
But here, enter more witnesses from verses 12 and 13. And to get a better view of this, let's turn to Luke chapter 24, verses 11 through 35. Luke chapter 24, verse, verses 11 through 35. Starting with verse 11. Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was, while they were conversing and reasoning, that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Listen to this. But their eyes were restrained, so they did not know him. And he said to them, What kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then one of those named Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem and have you not known the things which happened there in these days? I love Jesus. He says to them, what things? So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty indeed and word before God and all the people and how the chief priests and our, our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucify him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Instead, besides all of this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of, of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Then he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, I'd just like to stop there just for a second and just make a couple comments. We need to remember the eyes of an unbeliever are not opened by crafty speech. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.1, And when I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come as someone superior in speaking ability or wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony of God. So sometimes we think, oh, you know what? If I'm slick enough, I can open the eyes no, you can't. Even if you stumble over your words, if it is Scripture, that can be used. 
by the Holy Spirit to open the eyes. We need to remember what Hebrews 4.12 says. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We learn here from Luke that the proclamation of the word of God causes the disciples' hearts to burn within them. And why not? Romans 10, 16, and 17 says, But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who will believe our report? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The scripture confronts the unbelief that abides within his disciples. He exposes it so that they will repent and believe. And so now getting back to Luke, starting with verse 28. Then they drew near the village where they were going, and he inclined that he would have gone no further. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, that he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road, and while he opened the scriptures to us? So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. And they told about the things that had happened on the road, and how he, he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Here we see that Jesus appeared to these two men walking on the road to Emmaus. And this was about seven miles from Jerusalem. That would have been about a two or three hour walk. And they didn't recognize him this whole time. And they couldn't tell who he was. He was talking to them and even though their hearts burned within them, he didn't reveal himself. And when he did, he vanished. These two immediately walked back to Jerusalem. Remember it said it was late? They had an important message. Didn't matter if it was two or three hours. They were going to get there and tell the other disciples. But it says here in Mark 16, 13, that the apostles did not believe them either. The reason they don't believe is because they didn't believe the word of God. After all they had seen Jesus do, they still didn't believe what he had told them. And so what happens? Finally in verse 14 of our text, it says, Later he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart. 
because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. So here it says that as he's reclining at the table, his first message to them was a rebuke for their unbelief, for their lack of faith. The word used here is apostia, and it means their unfaithfulness, their faithlessness, being weak of faith. And then the, the hardness of heart is the Greek word sclerakadia, and it means that their hearts were stubborn. They were hard. They refused to believe the word of God. There was a destitution of spiritual perception. And that word rebuke is the Greek word anadzeo. Uh, anadzeo. An, anadizo. And it means to rail at, to chide, to chasten. He's basically saying, you guys are a disgrace and shameful. Their unbelief and their hardness of heart. These were supposed to be the best guys. And they don't believe what they've been told. With all the times that Jesus told them what would happen, they still didn't believe. But yet, by his grace, by new birth, through adoption into the family, we can stand together as sons and daughters of the living God. And we know that he deals with us as sons, that he has the best for us. If you'd please turn to Hebrews chapter 12. I think just, I just want to mention, I've mentioned this before, when uh, John Wesley, or Charles Wesley was, was uh, going, man, I haven't been rebuked by the Lord lately. Man, I just have not had any, any rebuking. I, I, maybe he doesn't love me anymore. So he'd been traveling, preaching, and so he got off his horse and he, he knelt in a field. And as he's kneeling, there's a farmer that saw him that hated him. He picked up a rock and he whizzed it right past Wesley's nose. And Wesley looked up, saw it, and he looked immediately up and said, thank you, Lord. <laughs> we get sort of that here in Hebrews chapter 12, starting with verse 3. For I consider him who, who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet res resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin, and you have not forgotten forgotten the exhortation which speaks to us as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, 
and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall, shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and, and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness." Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful, nevertheless, after it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You know what? That's why, that's why churches need to, need to be a church that actually holds to church discipline. So many churches are afraid, and discipline sounds horrible. Discipline isn't punishment. It's if you're strained, it's to bring you back. It's to re renew a right spirit in, in rebuke and in, in encouragement. It is, I, I mean, all these churches that go, oh man, I just don't know if I want to uh, do that because we'll lose people. Listen. If people are truly saved in sheep, they are his sheep. And he knows his sheep and he will keep his sheep. We need to be a church that stands on that and has confidence in that, that we are trained by that. Colossians 4.12 says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you always laboring fervently for you in prayers that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. That's what discipline does. And we should pray fervently for those who have, who have taken a wrong step. The reformers had that phrase, uh, semper reformanda, always reforming doesn't mean that you're always coming up with something new. It's bringing you back to what you know to be true. We need to be a people that always go semper reformanda. And so it says that no, no discipline is pleasant. But the, the, the fruit that it yields, it yields maturity. The work of Christ through the church confronts unbelief in the world. Now, we don't have the exact words of Jesus, what, it, what he said in rebuking these people, but we do know that it was because of unbelief and hardness of heart. We can see that these things are the most destructive to a believer glorifying God in their lives. How can Christ use us in his service when there are things prevailing in our spirit that are wrong? My prayer is that we learn this important lesson. 
that when we are in the greatest time of grief and sorrow and loss, we must look up and we must receive the testimony of Scripture. We need to understand the power of his resurrection. We need to find assurance in him and him alone. The rebuke that Christ gave the apostles was for their good. And it profited a whole bunch. We know that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. It is God's chosen vessel through regenerating work of the Holy Spirit to open the eyes of the blind and give them new life, those who are spiritually dead. And so the gospel we once hate, now we take. We carry it to the ends of the earth, and that's what we'll see next time, God willing. That the Lord gives his disciples the most important work that we have, and that is the Great Commission to take the gospel to a dying world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ and his faithful servant, John, our Mark John. We, we just, we know that um, John Mark was rescued from being an unfaithful guy and he was restored from his unfaithfulness so that he could be used to write this history of Jesus Christ, this gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we think that everything that he's told us is so amazing, so true. Lord, we just pray that through your word we can come to the understanding of your providential care in bringing men and women to you. That we can understand this amazing reality I pray that we would be men and women who would walk away from here just amazed that you love those who we just read about, but also that you love us. Sinners condemned unclean who have been made holy through the one that has risen. And we thank you and praise you in his most glorious and precious name. Amen.